Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So before we get to going today, I want to give a little bit of credit. There's a, a message by Jeff Henderson that shaped a significant portion of this message or portions of it, so I want to give him some credit. But uh, the message today that we're talking about is centered around this question. Have you ever had a bad church experience or faith experience? An experience that left you going, that was kind of artificial or that was kind of toxic or, or just it was just bad and difficult. I know that many of you have, probably all of you have, uh, because of two reasons. I hear lots of stories, and I have had lots of own personal experience with artificial, toxic faith experiences in my life. I grew up a PK, and actually I was talking to another guy between services who PK and says, we know because we grew up around pastors telling all the horror stories of toxic, artificial, difficult experiences around the campfire. We know it from the pastor's perspective, but I also know it from the perspective of, of visitors because I've been a part of several growing churches, interacted a lot with visitors, and I get to hear lots of stories about how we've all struggled with artificial, toxic faith experiences in the past. And, and then on top of that, I spent 11 years before coming here doing full-time consulting, and a lot of that work was doing intervention work. And, oh man, the stories I could tell you of toxic faith experiences, but they would have no redeeming value, so I don't normally share them from that experience. The point today is this. A lot of times when we meet somebody new, What's the first, what's the first uh, question we get asked? What do you do, right? So when I, get to do, when I get asked that question, I say, well, I'm a pastor. And what naturally happens is the person typically, if they're unchurched, gets uncomfortable. And they start wondering, what do I have to watch my P's and Q's on to make sure I don't say something this guy thinks is irreligious? And I have to admit, I really like irreligious people around me because it tells me that they're natural, they're just being real, they're being who they are. And I love it when people are natural and real. When I was a consultant, it was a lot easier because I could just answer that question by saying, I do leadership development and organizational consulting, and then the whole church thing wouldn't come up for a long time. We could just talk about that. And usually, when I was talking with unchurched people during that time, I, I could get get to the point where I'd had the ability to respond to them in a way long enough in their natural way that they knew I wasn't going to judge anything about who they were. So then it made the conversation easier. And here's what I learned through a lot of those conversations with people who were far from the church, not necessarily far from Jesus or interest in that, but far from the church. And it was this, many people struggle with their faith or even reject faith in the church, not because they don't want faith or they don't believe. It's because they have, are rejecting a particular brand of faith or they have themselves been rejected by a particular brand of faith. Now, why does that happen in the church? Well, uh, there's probably lots of reasons, but let me propose a couple really big picture ones. I mean, one of them is obvious. I mean, we've all heard the stories of divisiveness in churches and conflict and how painful that is. And certainly uh, a lot of churches you can look at and say, well, when they say love like Jesus, that's just something on their wall and it actually means nothing to what they act like, right? We understand that part. That's easy. The more difficult one sometimes I think is this, and I think uh, distilled it this way, I, I think a lot of times we get caught on those experiences because we have tried to oversimplify or over-processed our teaching. And as a result, we leave people 
uh, thinking about a brand of faith that leaves them undernourished and, in essence, starving without the strength to face reality. Wendy and I have a friend. His name is Andre. He's a, ten- he's a tennis pro. And uh, he was raised in a very wealthy South African uh, family. And they had servants that did everything for them. So he decided before he was going to get married, he needed to live on his own, completely without the help of servants. Well, about six weeks into that, or six, six months into that, he became, he became very sick. He couldn't figure out why. He went to the doctor several times, and eventually they diagnosed him with starvation, with malnutrition. The problem was he was eating a ton. The other problem was it was all Cocoa Puffs and Captain Crunch. There's nothing else in his diet. And he was actually putting on weight while he was having the same sickness problems of anybody who was from a starving country would have. And a lot of times when we approach our faith, with the, we approach our faith with this simplicity and we think that's going to be the step one, step two, step three. And if we do these steps, then we're going to live a fully abundant life in every area, financially, physically, emotionally. Everything is going to be just fine. And when it doesn't exactly turn out that way, we end up asking a set of questions of ourselves, often with some harsh emotion behind it, thinking, I don't pray enough or I don't read the Bible enough, or I just don't have enough faith, or I don't act in faith enough, or I'm not sin-free enough to be blessed. And we start going down that road, and we've all probably had friends, I've had friends who went down that road of an over-processed, over-simplified faith, and when prosperity or health didn't happen like they wanted, they rejected the church, left the church, sometimes left their faith altogether because it was too simplified to be adequate, to give us the strength to face life in all of its reality. Now, faith and reality need to meet in order for our faith to be natural. Faith needs to be something that brings value and freedom to our experience without denying the reality. And we can also think about over-processed, over-simplified faith in this way, and we probably more of us have experienced this. When faith becomes this light, tight little box of rules of behavior that we have to fit into in order to be accepted. Many of you grew up with that idea or that experience. You grew up in churches where if you didn't dress right, you were not accepted or or had family members that were that way. I remember a couple weeks ago I was listening to a testimony relating to this online and it was this girl talking about her mom. And how her mom, when she was growing up, had a divorce and had some addictions in her life and tried to re-engage her faith and go back to church in this. But she went to a church where she didn't fit in and she was rejected because she didn't dress right. And then she was rejected because her problems didn't go away fast enough. And if your problems don't go away fast enough, it means you're not fitting in that box and therefore you aren't accepted by the church people in her instance in this way. Or maybe some of you had friends like I had who accepted a really oversimplified brand of teaching and overprocessed and basically had great relationships with them in the church and all of a sudden they come with this idea and they say, you have to do this and you have to believe this and if you don't, then we're no longer going to be in relationship with you, right? And they leave. And there's no room for relationship above differences. There's very little patience for process and for discovery to even be on a quest in your faith. There's no room for patience for that. Have you ever had someone in faith treat you that way or experience any of those story arcs in your own life? Why do people do that? 
You ever thought about that? Why do we as people get caught in that? Because the reality is there's an awful lot of people. Most of us in this room probably at one point have experienced that. There's some things that are attractive about things like that too. And I think it's in part at least because of this, because those brands of faith go back to this idea of good enough and not, of being right, of being wrong, of being smarter or wiser or more spiritual than others. And why do they go there? And why do we tend to get drawn into that? It's because it becomes this substitute for a natural faith where we need to control our life in order to feel good about ourselves. Maybe you lived that brand of faith for a while, like I did. And you probably realized and struggled with faith for a while because you realized all of a sudden that not only could I not live up to those oversimplified box of rules in life, but when you got behind the veneer of church, you realized that the leaders weren't living up to that either. And so you've struggled in your faith. You've maybe even rejected the idea of faith, or at least, the very least, you've put up a wall and you keep a distance from faith because you're thinking, if I do this thing, if I get too close, it's not safe. And it's safer to stay on the edges of a faith community than it is to to get involved in the middle of things. And why do you think that? It's because of these toxic, artificial experiences you've had with church and with faith in the back uh, background of your life. But, but most of you have not rejected faith in God and probably not even rejected the idea of following Jesus in that equation. You've rejected or you protect yourself from a particular brand of faith. And frankly, the reason you're here today or the, frankly some of your friends that you've invited to come that aren't coming and they're going to listen to the podcast, the reason they're actually listening to the podcast is that there's still a desire for something more natural, something more organic, something that brings vibrancy to the reality of life, something that even in the midst of all the realities of the struggles, the good and the bad and the great in life, all of it, it makes sense. And it's a faith that works in real life. And you, even though maybe you've heard this before, maybe not have, may have not connect, fully connected to this idea, you are in great company if that's how you feel about faith and you've struggled with that. Not just the great company of everyone here, because almost everyone here has had that kind of experience. There's great company here. You're not alone in feeling the pain. You're not alone in feeling the disappointment or the disillusionment. You're not alone in the baggage that you've had to carry. You're not even alone in, the, in your desire to pursue something healthier in your faith. But even more than that, even more than everybody here, you're in the company of Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself experienced toxic artificial faith, and he spoke to it. And I want you to find hope in that. I want you to find hope not only that you're not alone, but I want you to find hope in the fact that maybe where you have been rejected by the church or you've rejected church because it's artificial, that you're actually recognizing something that Jesus also recognizes. And you're in good company. And that that alone can encourage you to engage or re-engage or engage with greater passion and focus in pursuit of your faith of being something natural, something organic, something that really, really works in real life. In a particularly intense day, we see Jesus commenting on this. He'd been experiencing this whole toxic artificial faith all throughout his ministry, but it was a particularly intense day. And we see him in Matthew 23 actually speak to it. And Jesus says this. He says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, 
So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And, I, and I'm going I'm to just straight up admit what I'm about to say is probably not the best motivation, but I really love the rest of this chapter. I love the fact that Jesus goes in and talks about seven woes upon these teachers, these religious leaders who are, are creating this toxic, artificial faith experience. I love the fact that Jesus gets in their face and says, you blind guides, you blind fools. I love the fact that he says, you're so foolish, you are like people who strain out gnats and swallow a camel. And you, he says, you brood of vipers, you are condemned to hell. And Jesus is not talking to the sinners, he's talking to the religious people. And he says to them, you whitewashed tombs. And frankly, when I get into my toxic faith experiences and think about that, don't you just, and then when you get there, don't you just want to say that kind of stuff to people sometime? Wouldn't that feel good to say that? But then I realize, if I'm really honest with myself, how easy, is it, how easy it is for me and how easy it is for all of us to fall back into the trap of having our primary focus be on right and wrong because something in that gives us the comfort if we believe we're right that then we can feel good about ourselves. Instead of focusing on who Jesus is to us, who he's made to us, and his forgiveness, it's so easy to fall back into making ourselves feel right by being right in our mind and in our faith. And then I realize how easy, is it, for, how easy it is for me and how easy it is for any one of us to become a Pharisee. In fact, if I'm really honest with my own toxic artificial faith experiences in life, I have been probably like you at times where I've wanted to nicely talk about that and other times where I wasn't so nice in talking about the people who inflicted those experiences on me. And I condemned those people who hurt me in much the same manner that was behind their toxic faith being pervaded upon me. And I became the purveyor of my own toxicity on others without even realizing it. It is so easy to fall in that trap. And, and here's what I really want you to get from Jesus' statement that he said earlier. Our struggle in our artificial toxic faith experiences is the bad faith experiences has really less to do with our experience and the people we experienced it from and more to do with how we deal with it and how we perceive it and how we, how we deal with it. Jesus says it this way. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. And the reality is we've had those things put on our shoulders and we are still all too often letting them stay there. We're still carrying that heavy weight around and we want to, to switch metaphors. We want to sweep it under the rug. We want to believe that it's not there. We want to believe that those experiences are part of our past and they're staying there, but the reality is those experiences still bleed over into the present all too often. And they still dictate too much of our future negatively. Maybe you recognize that those experiences are there whenever you're in a setting and the experience smacks of something similar to that artificial toxic faith experience you had in the past. Your stomach starts to get tied up in knots. You feel that knot of that burden of that experience weighing on the back of your heart. And, and, and it may be hidden, and you may think it's not there, but you still experience. And then you respond to those moments either with putting a wall up and saying, I, I need to keep my distance from this, or you respond with overreacting and getting angry or, or, or speaking against it. It's very, very much like 
like we do naturally in life when we have a really hard day at work. We go to work and have a really hard day and we come home and sometimes we blow up at those closest to us that we love the most and it has absolutely nothing to do with them, right? But there's something that gets pricked in that moment. And we see it a lot in, in when, we, when we teach and when we work with other people. I remember one time teaching a college class on behavioral styles and a woman in there got furious with me, got just really belligerent and angry with me. And I found out later that I was the same behavioral style as her husband who was divorcing her. She just projected it on me and projected it in the situation. She was trying to leave it in the past, but it still affects the present. So when you come to church and somebody uses a word or a phrase or, a, or something like that that pricks that last experience, you go into one of those states of distance or anger or your mind goes somewhere else. We preachers love it when we pick on those words. It just makes our day to see that happen. And, or you run into a small group experience, Right? And it feels a little bit too much like one of those old toxic experiences and the baggage resurfaces and you start refeeling those feelings and the same arguments happen in your head again. And the reality is that for us, when we struggle with this kind of baggage, is life is a lot like old church photos. Here's an old church photo, a church family photo. That's, that's my family, circa 1930, 19, no, not 1930, 1973, 1974, somewhere there. And, uh, and we were talking about my glasses the other week. I just, I, I, I scanned that photo and realized I have my dad's glasses too, not just my wife's dad's glasses. I have my dad's glasses. These are 19, that's how long it takes for fashion to come back, I guess. And, uh, Everybody's smiling in that photo. And, but behind that photo, there's actually a lot of turmoil and pain going on at that time of life. And it would lead to, 18 months later, leaving a job and going to somewhere else and leaving behind a lot of friends because of that difficulty and that pain. But you never see it in the photo. And our world is so much like that. Instagram and Facebook have become that for us. You never see a, a non-smiling, fun picture on Facebook that's always smiling, but behind everybody's smile, behind everybody's look, there is this story behind it. And each of us don't want our past to affect our present, but the reality is it does. Our past still affects our present. And all too often, even though we sweep it under the rug, it's still there. And it often dictates negatively where we're headed in the future. But the good news is that God wants us to be free of that heaviness. Not only be free of it, but have that turned into something different. What if our toxic, artificial faith experiences, and even those moments when we, in the midst of experiencing those things, got angry and we ourselves also sinned by spreading the toxicity to other people, what if God wanted to make those very things the things that bring healing to us and bring hope and lead other people into the future through us? What if we allow our lives to be hope and encouragement to others? who are struggling with similar issues. What if the best place on earth, even though those experiences for you may have happened in the church, what if the best place on earth is right here in relationship with other people at church to find that healing and that freedom from that heaviness? As imperfect as we all are, as imperfect as any church is. See, the toxicity of our past experiences really has a lot of times more to do with the fact that we keep the infection in. We bottle it up, but we don't deal with it. 
And we don't let God turn it into something different, something beautiful. And that's what God's inviting us today as we look through the rest of the scriptures and the the thoughts that we're going to talk about today. He's inviting us to pull back the carpet. He's inviting us to open up to others in our faith and to him and to be healed and then also to be let those stories be hope for other people. But that's the opposite of what many unchurched friends of mine think about church especially. When I have a really honest conversations with, with unchurched people that I'm inviting to church, a frequent comment that comes up is, well, I'll come, but I've got some issues. I've got some issues in my past, and before I can come to church, I need to work through, through those issues because you don't really want me to come to church because if I come to church with those issues, then I'm going to be a hypocrite. And you don't want me to be a hypocrite, right? And if that's been your perception or any of your friends' perception, just let me say this. I apologize. The church, that's never intended to be what the church is all about. That's, that's a, a message that you've been given. And, and unfortunately, it's a message you've been given with some intentionality by all too many people in church and struggle, who struggle with it. Churches struggle with it all the time. We struggle with it here sometimes. It's been usually a lesser struggle here. But we struggle with that perception. A few, point, a few years ago, I was preaching a message, and in the illustration for it, I used the illustra- uh, to illustrate the point, I talked about how I was personally at that point in professional counseling. I was trying to deal with some emotional baggage and s- some stuff that I had just so I could be a better dad, a better husband, a better person. And after church was done, I had a number of people come to me and say, I don't know if I can be a part of this church. I don't know if I can follow you. In fact, some of them were serious enough they were saying I was gonna leave, they were going to leave the church. Because you can't have that kind of an issue and be a leader. And the reality is, the reality is, whether it's counseling with a friend over coffee or whether you pay a professional to do counseling with you, that's stuff that healthy, immature, healthy, imperfect people do. That's normal stuff. That's natural stuff. That's being real instead of being artificial. And that's the kind of people we need to be. But why do people think there's a disconnect between healthy, mature spirituality and the need for counsel? Well, again, there's probably many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is the way we portray people in the Bible, the way we read the Bible. We give Bible characters nicknames. We call them Saint Peter and Saint Paul and Saint John, right? And I suppose giving them the nickname saint is fine in terms of honoring them for the, the heritage they've given us and the impact they've made throughout the years. But the problem with that is it elevates their lives to something that is unrelatable to us. And we tend to feel like we need to ignore their issues. But the problem with that is when you actually start to read the Bible, you realize most of these guys should be in serious counseling. I mean, if you want to feel good about yourself in life, start reading the Bible. You're going to see that your family is really pretty functional compared to a lot of the Bible greats. I mean, and I say that it's funny, but it's, it's true, isn't it? They all have issues. Think about it. The example of St. Paul, the guy who started a worldwide movement, who wrote over half the New Testament, who uh, uh, wrote the love chapter, which many of you had cited at your wedding. And think of him. I think he'd be appalled that we call him St. Paul. And I think that for good reason, because he actually says in the Bible what he gave himself as his own nickname. In First Timothy, he says his, his nickname he gives himself is the worst of all sinners. My wife was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
Can you imagine if I had to say my wife was born on the worst of all sinners in Minnesota? <laughs> That's, oh. And I thought growing up in Keister was bad. But Paul's trying to give us a foundational truth about the story of God. And it's not the ho-hum average day story of an extraordinary God who uses an extraordinary people to change history. No, the story of God is the spectacular, awe-inspiring, amazing, perfect, holy, loving creator of all of earth stoops down and comes to us in unspeakable humility and grace, in patience that is just mind-blowing to love us right where we're at and get his hands dirty in the mess of your life and my life. And on top of that, he doesn't just do that. He gives each of us, each of us in the midst of all that mess, an extraordinary purpose, a beautiful purpose to accomplish in life, to glorify not our name, but his name and his power and his hope so that others get to look at us and say, if God can do that through him, if God can do that through her, then maybe there's hope for me as well. See, the bottom line of Paul saying, I am the worst of all sinners, is the truth that out of our bad experiences, God's comfort brings hope. The truth is, don't you dare believe that ever that the truth is that something in your past has disqualified you. That's not true. It, there can ever be anything that disqualifies you, either from belonging in the church or belonging in faith to God or even being able to serve the grand, wonderful purpose He has for your life. In fact, Paul says the glory and the love of God is best seen, is greatest when we pull back the carpet and we let the world see where our life is, just like Paul. I mean, how bad is this guy Paul? We get to see him actually say more about how bad he is in a conversation later in his life recounting his history with a guy named King Agrippa. Paul says this. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul is a religious, fanatic terrorist. He goes on and says, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. What he's telling us there is that it wasn't good enough that they economically boycotted them and made their life difficult. It wasn't good enough that they put them in prison. He wanted them to say something that would allow them to put them to death. That's what he wanted. And he goes on and says, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This is who we call St. Paul. And he was opposing the church so much that the story of the Bible says that Jesus had to show, show, up, to, show up in a really powerful way to him. I mean, let's face it, we've all got issues, but Jesus never had to show up to us in the way he showed up to Paul. We see in Acts 9... Uh, Jesus comes to Saul in the bright light and appears to him, knocks him off his horse and, and blinds him. And, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. Essentially what he's saying is, Paul, stop persecuting me because you are my, you are my messenger to bring my good news to kings to the Gentiles and to Jews throughout the entire world. 
We see in, in Acts 9 the, where the story is actually told, recorded live for the first time. We see a guy named Ananias. And Jesus comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go pray for Paul and I want you to affirm this call on his life to the Gentiles and to kings and to Jews, a worldwide call. And Ananias goes, really? You got the right person? You sure this is the guy who came to kill us? You sure you got the right person here? How many times have you ever informed God of information you think he has forgotten about you? Or you think he's forgotten about the person who maybe was the source of that toxic artificial faith experience for you? Why is Ananias doing this? It's because he thinks like us. He thinks exactly like us. Jeez, this guy's the last person on the planet that would ever be the person you would use to get this message out. And that's how we think about ourselves oftentimes. We think we're the last person on the planet that God could use to pray for somebody and see him come to faith or healed or, or our story used to bring somebody to faith. And, and how often, even beyond that, do we think about the people who are perpetrators of that artificial, toxic faith experience that wounded us and created so much heaviness in our life? And we think that same thing about them because we're like Ananias. This guy has done too many bad things. God, you picked the wrong guy. How can you work through him or her? And Jesus' point in this whole thing is that that's my point. Yes, this guy has done too many issues, too many things. He's got too many issues. And if, if I can do something through this man, it'll shake history. It'll shake the world. Because if I can do it through Paul, I can do it through every single person. If I can bring hope out of the bad experiences of Paul's pasts, past, I can bring hope out of anyone's past. See, God loves to work through imperfect, unlikely candidates. That's the reason I'm convinced God's favorite football team is the Cleveland Browns. And the Vikings are right close behind him trying to vie for that. God loves unlikely candidates, and we are all unlikely candidates. Natural Powerful faith is centered in that understanding. It's not about you. It's about God's grace and about God's power in you. So that people, when they look at you, they will say, Wow, maybe it's true that God is really patient. Maybe it's true that God is kind. If He can do that through them, then He can do it through me. If He can be that to them, He can be it to me. Paul reinforces this in a really powerful way in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Let's read that. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. What Paul is basically saying to us about our specific topic today is life is full of artificial toxic faith experiences that others bring on us, we can be sure it's going to happen again. And frankly, we bring a lot of them on ourselves because of our warped way of thinking about faith. And the issue in the end is really less about what happened and the person that it happened through and more about what we do with it. 
In fact, Paul is saying God wants to work in our ashes, the things we've swept under rugs, those painful experiences that we think we forgot. He wants to not only work in us, but he wants the relationships around us, as imperfect as those relationships will always be in the church, to also come to us and bring us comfort so that that comfort can turn into the greatest gift that we can also give to other people, that same comfort. In a sense, he's given us a, a three-step process, and I hate distilling things, the three-step process, but I, I decided to keep this one because I thought it was good today. First step that we have to take in re- if we're going to respond to this text is we have to acknowledge that your past, you have to acknowledge your past. You have to acknowledge the fact that you've got these experiences and that they still crop up. They still come to mind. They still force you to create barriers. And maybe part of that acknowledgement is this. Some of, my, some of my personally greatest artificial toxic faith experiences have been centered around when I opened up myself for other people to pray for me. And they were just really painful, really abusive, really weird at times. So for me, part of acknowledging is not just saying, God, I've got these experiences. But for me, part of my, part of my acknowledging is saying, I'm not going to let that stop me from continuing to ask for prayer. I'm going to let imperfect people pray for me, even when sometimes I know they're going to be off and they're going to say things that are dumb and stupid and hurtful. I'm going to still do that, right? That's good. Acknowledging is good. But dealing with your past is better. We talk a lot about authenticity, right? I mean, that's another word for natural. We want a natural faith, something that really touches every part of our being that we can be real with, right? But that authenticity by nature starts with the ability to open up and let other people in, to be honest with who we are, with other people. And by nature, that's going to mean that for most of us, we're going to need to be in a small group because we aren't going to be intentional enough to be that open with other people in relationships somewhere else. Now, it's not about small groups. It's about relationship. Are you intentional? Because nothing changes. We never have any significant growth anywhere in our life apart from relationship. And that's what this text is saying. If you want to find comfort, you have to open yourself up to other people who will, with the comfort they've received, even if it's in part, even if it's partial, even if it's imperfect, that receive the comfort they've given, and that's the way these heavy loads are removed when we open ourselves up. And that's, that's, that's better, but best is, is the third point, leveraging our past. That's best. Really what Paul is saying here in Second Corinthians is if you don't open your life up, if you don't acknowledge these things, and if you don't allow yourself to be vulnerable and open once in a while with other people around you, if you don't have the courage to pull back the carpet, someone else misses out. Someone else misses out, your family, your friends, your coworkers. Somebody else is going to miss out. You see, those toxic, artificial faith experiences, the pain, the weight that you've carried around, the messages you've carried around that have caused you to be distant, God wants to flip those into gifts that you give to other people, the comfort you receive in this moment. And it becomes the most powerful part of your story. Not the fact that you've changed, but the fact that God allowed you to pull back the rug and made something beautiful out of something so difficult. You know, haven't we all heard people say this? Haven't we all heard people say, I would have never imagined that the most painful, most devastating thing that experience of my life has been the thing that God used most to make a difference in the lives of other people? That's what Paul's saying here. If we don't get this openness and this relational thing, we miss out 
on giving the best gifts that God has. And we've seen that here at Quest. There's been so much growth and openness, so, um, such amazing things. We've heard Courtney's story of her journey from abandonment and fear and anxiety and how she pulled back the rug on that stuff in an inward journey and found in relationship with other people the presence of God and healing in an amazing way. We've seen Elise share her testimony on video for all of us about her journey through depression and sadness and God meeting her in the midst of that personally, but more than that, God meeting her through other people in her life and, and and that brings comfort. And we've seen Phil get up and talk on a number of different occasions in a number of different ways about how he grew up in such a rejecting atmosphere in home and it led to such drivenness and such dysfunctional relationships, especially with men, and how God allowed him to pull back that rug with other people in relationship and how he found comfort and how that's made a difference. And we've seen the Wilsons and the Rogers and the Pulliams all get up and talk about how they've dealt with financial stress and how that was so negative uh, of tension in their marriage. And by pulling back the rug on that stuff in the context of financial, uni- financial Peace University and let other people walk with them has been a major place of comfort. And that's not the best part of any of those stories. The best part of those stories is that God is using, God is leveraging those stories to bring the same comfort, the same healing in other people's lives. And God wants to do that through your story as well. You see, Paul never imagined that God would use the bad faith experiences he had in life to leverage those to make such an impact for good in other people's lives. See, this is the essence of natural organic, healthy faith. This is the essence of the gospel, the good news. This is the essence of the saving message of the Bible. And that challenge requires each of us to take a step. We can use that same three-process step. The first step is your individual responsibility. You've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to acknowledge that it's there before you can even be willing to pull it back. And then the second step is our responsibility. Will we, as a faith community, respond to each other in a way that creates this wonderful process, patient, safe, loving, comforting atmosphere that allows all of us to be natural and real in our faith? And I think we're already doing that tremendously. I think God wants to keep stretching us further in that. Step three is primarily God's responsibility. We have a small responsibility there. We, we need to tell our stories. We need to be able to say what we had under the carpet and, uh, and bring it out. But then it's God's responsibility to draw people through those stories. It's God's responsibility to give people hope and let them know the power of His presence with them to help bring healing to them. So today we have two options. We have an option. One is to, to stay hidden and stay keep the stuff shoved under the carpet and pretend that there's nothing under there. We have the option to play the the happy Christian and think that it's going to stay there, but it doesn't. It won't stay there. It's going to come out. It still affects us. It still pops up. Even if it came to your mind, today is probably proof that it still pops up in your life. And in the end, if we choose to keep things hidden, the reality is we will experience even more toxic faith experiences. And we will also be the purveyor of toxic faith experiences in other people because we choose that. Because in truth, the toxic infection of our past still affects our present and still influences our future. Or we have the option to uncover it. We have the option to talk about it with friends here at Quest and in community to begin to receive comfort. Even as imperfect as that comfort may be, because we don't always know how to respond to another, but we can still receive comfort. 
And God can turn those heavy places, those hard places, those things that make us want to stay at a distance into something that brings hope and freedom and comfort to others in ways that we can't imagine. God wants to make your worst experiences the best part of your story to lead people to him. The question really is, will we trust God? And I think an even more question, a more difficult question for us is, will we trust him enough to trust his imperfect church to be a part of that? I think that's the key question. And that's what we're talking about today. If you've been here today and there's been some of that baggage come up in your mind, it's made you uncomfortable. You've had some of those same feelings, some of those same thoughts. Let me suggest to you that that is the Holy Spirit inviting you to bring it out from under the rug. It's not just my thoughts. It's not just somebody else's thoughts. If you got them stuffed hard enough, nothing I can say can bring them out into the open. But the Holy Spirit is here wanting you to do that. If that's true, then I want to invite you to turn to a friend before you leave today. Turn to a friend and just say, here's, what I, here's what's been under the carpet. You don't have to go into nitty-gritty details. Just be clear. Just be concise and clear and say, would you pray for me? And then if somebody asks you to do that, no advice. Don't give any advice. Just comfort them and pray that God's Spirit would come and comfort them. Just be with them in that moment, okay? If you don't have a friend here that you feel comfortable doing that with, there will be some people after service waiting in the back prayer area that we trust, that you can trust as well. So let's just ask God to come and continue to be with us. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us because we've all had those difficult, disappointing, painful, toxic, artificial experiences that, that we've allowed ourselves to carry that keep us at a distance in ways that we wish we weren't. And Lord, we know we don't want to be at a distance, but, but we, we still do. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to bring friends into that with us, to bring you through those friendships in there. And Lord, that we would be able to live this dream, this imagination that those things that we've struggled with can become the best gifts of freedom and healing and the best testimony to your goodness that our lives could ever be, the best part of our story to show other people how much you love them because you love us, even in the midst of all those walls that we put up. Lord, bring freedom today. Increase freedom today by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join in worship? Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you. We ask that you would come and that you would have your way. You'd have your way with our stories. You'd have our way with the junk of our lives. That, that, we, that they would become our stories that our community would see. Our friends would see. Our family would see. Our children would see. And they'd go, you really are loving. Lord, empower each and every one of us to be that story for you, to be that comfort for you. So, if I could have one thing that I saw with us in growth this year, not that it's not here. We're already doing so well in so much of this. If I, two things, two things this year. I'd love for us to keep pressing in growing and being honest with friends. 
just opening our stuff, pulling back the rug, letting people into our lives, and trusting God, even in the imperfection of people's responses, that his comfort comes to us, that we would experience that. And the other part of that is, I want us by the end of the year to feel a whole lot more comfortable asking for prayer and praying for each other. God wants to use each and every one of us here to do miracles in people's lives, whether it's a physical healing or whether it's an emotional thing, whether it's a provision for whatever. God wants to work through each and every one of our prayers to make a difference. That's one way the Holy Spirit works through you to bring comfort. When you pray, God sometimes becomes very real in that moment to the other person. And when you pray, even if God doesn't become real in that moment, he's still hearing your prayer. And that comfort's going to come. So I just want to encourage you, if there was something that came up today where you went, this is a place of baggage that keeps me from being fully engaged, I want you to turn to a friend and ask him for prayer before you leave. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.